Chapter Eleven of Traylon by Max Brand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. Chapter Eleven. The quest begins. You know the old place on the other side of the range, like a book. I got pet names for all the trees. There's a man there I want. Logan? No, his name is Bard. Hmm. Any relation to the old bird that was partners with you back about the year one? I want Anthony Bard brought here," said Drew, entirely overlooking the question. Easy. I can make the trip in a buckboard, and I'll dump him in the back of it. No, he's got to ride here. Understand? A dead man," said Nash calmly. "Ain't much good on a hoss." Listen to me," Drew said, his voice lowering to a musical thunder. If you harm a hair on this lad's head, I'll, I'll break you in two with my own hands. And then he made a significant gesture, as if he were snapping a twig between his fingers. Nash moistened his lips, then his square, powerful jaw jutted out. Which the general idea is me doing baby talk and sort of hypnotizing this bard fella into coming along. More than that, he's got to be brought here alive, untouched, and placed in that chair. Tied so he can't move a hand or foot for ten minutes while I talk. Nice quiet day you've got planned for me, Mister Drew. The gray man considered thoughtfully. Now and then you've told me of a girl at Eldara. I think her name is Sally Fortune. Right. She begins where the rest of the calico leaves off. Hmm. That sounds familiar somehow. Well, Steve, you've said that if you had a good start, you think the girl would marry you. I think she might. She pretty fond of you. She knows that if I can't have her, I'm fast enough to keep everyone else away. I see. A process of elimination with you as the eliminator. Rather an odd courtship, Steve. The cowpuncher grew deadly serious. You see, I love her. There ain't no way of bucking out of that. So do nine out of ten of all the boys that have seen her. Which one will she pick? That's the question we all keep asking, because of all the contrary freckle-faced devils with the heart of a man and the smile of a woman, Sally has 'em all beat from the drop of the barrier. One feller has money, another has looks, another has a funny line of talk, but I've got the fastest gun. So Sally sees she's due for a complete outfit of black mourning if she marries any other man while I'm alive, and that keeps her thinking. But if I had the price of a start in the world, why, maybe she'd take a long look at me. Would she call one thousand dollars in cash a start in the world, and your job as foreman of my place with twice the salary you have now? Steve Nash wiped his forehead. He said huskily, "A joke along this line. Don't bring no laugh for me, Governor. I mean it, Steve. Get Anthony Bard tied hand and foot into this house, so I can talk to him safely for ten minutes." And you'll have everything I promise, perhaps more, but that depends. The blunt-fingered hand of Nash stole across the table. If it's a go, shake, Mister Drew. A mighty hand fell into his, and under the pressure he set his teeth. Afterwards, he covertly moved his fingers and sighed with relief to see that no permanent harm had been done. Me speaking personal, Mister Drew, 
I'd a give a lot to seen you when you was riding the range. This bard, he'll be here before sunset tomorrow. Don't jump to conclusions, Steve. I've an idea that before you count your thousand, you'll think you've been underpaid. That's straight. This bard's something of a man? I can say that without stopping to think. Texas? No, he's a tenderfoot, but he can ride a horse as if he was sewed to the skin, and I've an idea he can do other things up to the same standard. If you can find two or three men who have silent tongues and strong hands, you'd better take them along. I'll pay their wages, and big ones. You can name your price. But Nash was frowning. Now and then I talk to the cards a bit, Mr. Drew, and you'll hear fellers say some pretty rough things about me. But I've never asked for no odds against any man, and I'm not going to start now. You're a hard man, Steve, but so am I, and hard men are the kind I take to. I know that you're the best foreman who ever rode this range, and I know that when you start things you generally finish them. All that I ask is that you bring Bard to me in this house. The way you do it is your own problem. Drunk or drugged, I don't care. But get him here, unharmed. Understand? Mr. Drew, you can start figuring what you're going to say to him now. I'll get him here, safe. And then, Sally, if money will buy her, you'll have me behind you when you bid. When shall I start? Now. So long, then. He rose and passed hastily from the room, leaning forward from his hips like a man who was making a start in a foot race. Straight up the stairs he went to his room, for the foreman lived in the big house of the rancher. There he took a quantity of equipment from a closet and flung it on the bed. Over three selections he lingered long. First was the cartridge belt, and he tried over several with conscientious care until he found the one which received the cartridges with the greatest ease. He could flip them out in the night automatically as a pianist fingers the scale in the dark. Next he examined lariats painfully, inch by inch, as though he were going to rope the staunchest steer that ever roamed the range. Already he knew that those ropes were sound and true throughout, but he took no chances now. One of the ropes he discarded, because one or two of the strands in it were, or might be, a trifle frayed. The others he took alternately, and whirled with a broad loop standing in the center of the room. Of the set, one was a little more supple, a little more durable, it seemed. This he selected and coiled swiftly. Last of all he lingered, and longest, over his revolvers. Six in all, he set them out in a row, along the bed, and without delay threw out two to begin with. Then he fingered the others, tried their weight and balance, slipped cartridges into the cylinders, and extracted them again, whirled the cylinders, examined the minutest parts of the action. They were all such guns as an expert would have turned over with shining eyes, but finally he threw one aside into the discard. The cylinder revolved just a little too hard. Another was abandoned after much handling of the remaining three, because to the delicate touch of Nash it seemed that the weight of the barrel was a gram more than in the other two. But after this selection it seemed that there was no possible choice between the final two. So he stood in the center of the room, and went through a series of odd gymnastics. Each gun in turn he placed in the holster, and then jerked it out, spinning it on the trigger-guard around his second finger, while his left hand shot diagonally across his body and fanned the hammer. Still he could not make his choice, but he would not abandon the effort. 
It was an old maxim with him that there was in all the world one gun which was the best of all, and with which even the novice can become a killer. He tried walking away, whirling as he made his draw, and leveling the gun on the doorknob. Then, without moving his hand, he lowered his head and squinted down the sights. In each case, the bead was drawn to a center shot. Last of all, he weighed each gun. One seemed a trifle lighter, the merest shade lighter than the other. This he slipped into the holster, and carried the rest of his apparatus back to the closet from which he had taken it. Still, the preparation had not ended. Filling his cartridge belt, every cartridge was subject to a rigid inspection. A full half-hour was wasted in this manner, wasted because he rejected not one of the many he examined. Yet he seemed happier after having made his selection, and went down the stairs humming softly. Out to the barn he went, lantern in hand. This time he made no comparison of the horses, but went directly to an ugly-headed roan, long of leg, vicious of eye, thin-shouldered, and with hips that slanted sharply down. No one with knowledge of fine horse-flesh could have looked on this brute without aversion. It did not have even size in its favor. A wild, free spirit, perhaps, might be the reason. But the animal stood with hanging head and pendant lower lip. One eye was closed and the other half open. A blind affection, then, made him go to this horse first of all. No, his greeting was to jerk his knee sharply into the ribs of the roan, which answered with a grunt and swung its head around with bared teeth like an angry dog. "'Damn your eyes!' roared the hoarse voice of Steve Nash. "'Stand still, or I'll knock you for a goal!' The ears of the mustang flattened close to its neck, and a devil of hate came up in its eyes, but it stood quiet while Nash went about at a judicious distance and examined all the vital points. The hoofs were sound, and the backbone prominent, but not a high ridge from famine or much hard riding." The indomitable hate in the eyes of the mustang seemed to please the cowpuncher. It was a struggle to bridle the beast, which was accomplished only by grinding the points of his knuckles into the tender parts of the jowl to make the locked teeth open. In saddling, the knee came into play again, wrapping the ribs of the brute repeatedly before the wind, which swelled out the chest to false proportions, was expelled in a sudden grunt, and the cinch whipped up taut. After that, Nash dodged the flying heels, chose his time, and vaulted into the saddle. The mustang trotted quietly out of the barn. Perhaps he had had his fill of bucking on that treacherous, slippery wood floor, but once outside he turned loose the full assortment of the cattle-pony's tricks. It was only ten minutes, but while it lasted the cursing of Nash was loud and steady, mixed with the crack of his murderous quirt against the roan's flanks. The bucking ended as quickly as it had begun, and they started at a long canter over the trail. End of chapter 11